When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we do each week, to be here with us this morning, and we trust that you are here in our midst. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Have you recently heard the phrase, do the work? I feel like I've been hearing this phrase a lot recently, uh, probably most often as kind of a slogan within modern social justice movements. You know, do the work, but it's of course a much broader suggestion than that. There are many areas in our lives where we could either stand to do some work or are told to do some work. There's uh, no end to the work though. Isn't that the problem with work? That no matter how well you work today, you wake up tomorrow and there's more work to be done. There's never an end. Of course, this has always been the problem with the do the work solution to any problem. The work doesn't ever actually get done. And we humans have been trying to do the work, well, for as long as we've been having problems. Think about it. Are you satisfied with your physical appearance? No? Do the work. Is your marriage falling apart? Do the work. Are you struggling in any area of your life? Do the work. And going all the way back for a second, we're going to return here in just a moment, but going all the way back, do you hear God walking in the garden? Are you naked and ashamed? Do the work. Now, of course, exactly what the work entails in each of these situations might be quite different. And of course, what kind of work is suggested might differ wildly depending on who is the person actually suggesting the work. But the goal is always the same, right? Self-preservation, making things okay. For instance, to use one of those concrete real-world examples, someone might see that the dire straits that your marriage is in and suggest that you do the work of self-improvement turning yourself into a better person that your spouse might actually desire to be with. Now, someone else might see your situation and suggest that you do the work of finding a new spouse, one that will be able to see the wonderful person that you already are and more fully meet your needs. Either way, you're to do the work. You're in charge of making things right. No matter which way you go, right or left, up or down, you're the one assigned to do the work. And the Bible knows about this human proclivity that there are all kinds of different work we can do, and it illustrates it clearly in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. In that story, two brothers try to make things right for themselves in two very different ways, right? One tries to score points with his father through obedience, while the other rebels against his father and goes off to have a never-ending party. Now, either way, they're doing work, aren't they? One works for the Father, and one works against Him. But they're both working to make things right for themselves, 
in their own minds. But I want to go back to Adam and Eve for a second. Because this is a very interesting way of doing the work. And it bears directly on our story of Simon and his interaction with Jesus at the seashore this morning. Adam and Eve, first their work consisted of eating forbidden fruit, right? Wanting to make themselves like God. They did the work to make things right for themselves. But when that didn't work out, they had different work they turned to. They hear God coming and know they've been disobedient. Maybe they think he won't notice if we cover ourselves, if we hide. Maybe things will be made right if we tell him by deed, if not by word, to go away. Maybe we need to be separate from this God. And so they hide. And this is a fascinating way in which human beings actually get to work. In fact, this is what hard workers do. We tell saviors to go away. Simon just spent last night doing the work. We read in Luke's account that he had worked all night fishing on the lake of Hennezaret, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Simon is a fisherman. He's been out trying to earn a living to make things right for himself and his family with his friends and partners, James and John. You can hear the questions. Do you need to feed your wife? Do the work. Is your business struggling? Do the work. And it seems like Simon's business is struggling. He has not caught a thing. And so after this long night of failure, he brings his boat in and he's washing his nets along with James and John. And there's this preacher on the shore. And this guy then asks Simon if he can actually preach from his boat. And Simon says, okay. So they put out a little ways and the preaching goes on. And just by the way, I am now absolutely incapable of thinking about this story without picturing the moving way the incident is depicted in The Chosen, which again is great. Here's my monthly Chosen plug. Watch The Chosen. So after the preacher is done with his sermon, he tells Simon to put out into the deep water and to let down his nets for a catch. Simon protests, but only slightly because, you know, he's just been doing that and failing at it all night. But he does end up going along. And of course, he catches so many fish that the two boats, his as well as James and John's, together start to sink, unable to bring in this miraculous catch of fish. And that's when it happens. Simon realizes that a miracle is happening he stumbles up to the preacher, falls at his knees, and tells him, he tells Jesus to go away. What? What are you thinking? This is a very strange thing to tell this person to go away. What about the miracle? At first glance, you'd think that Simon would want the guy to hang around just for business purposes. <laughs> Jesus is good for business. 
But it turns out that it, in fact, makes all the logical sense in the world for Simon to tell Jesus to go away because it's just like Adam and Eve covering up in the garden. Simon's sin, and this is his own reasoning, that Jesus should go away from him because of how sinful Simon is. Simon's sin, he assumes, is going to somehow disgust Jesus or anger Jesus or make Jesus furious. So maybe Simon can save himself, make things okay by sending Jesus away. He's probably feeling just like Isaiah, who we read about in our Old Testament reading this morning. Isaiah having that vision of God in his throne room, confronted with the holiness and almighty nature of the Lord. Isaiah despairs. Woe is me, he cries. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Both Isaiah and Simon would rather not be in the presence of holiness. Just like Adam and Eve. They assume that they won't be able to stand it. That they're too sinful to survive. But times have changed since then, haven't they? Today... When the modern Simon steps off the boat, he doesn't reflect on his desperate need and say, depart from me for I am a sinful man. No. The cry of today's Simon, who has just spent all day and night doing the work, is instead, depart from me for I am a righteous man. Our do-the-work culture No matter what the work is, up or down, right or left, our do-the-work culture allows us, in fact, encourages us to see ourselves, at the very worst, as on the right track. After all, we're doing the work, just like we were told. Now, of course, very few people would be willing to claim that their work is done, but almost everyone is ready to say that they're on their way. Almost everyone is ready to say that they're doing the work, getting better all the time, and well, no thanks, Jesus. I don't need saving. I'm doing all right. Thank you. The natural human response is, in fact, to tell Jesus to go away. And even to his face, right? Simon certainly isn't the only one, even in the Bible. Remember the rich young man from Mark chapter 10. He comes to Jesus asking what he must do to be saved. When Jesus tells him to follow the law, the young man says he's been doing so since his youth. Okay, says Jesus, why don't you do this? Sell all you have, give the money to the poor, and follow me. Now in Mark's Telling, we read that the young man went away, but that's just another way of telling Jesus to go. The separation is the same. No thanks, Jesus. I'm not going to do what you ask. I think it's better if we're apart. It's not me, it's you. 
We know what the man was thinking, though, because he tells Jesus that he has kept the law since his youth. He's telling Jesus to go away. And in so doing, he's saying, depart from me, for I am a righteous man. I don't need what you're selling, Jesus. Go knock on some other door. I'm doing the work on my own. Simon makes the better, more fearful confession. Depart from me, not because I am righteous, but because I am a sinner. Jesus was, in effect, told to go away in both situations. To the rich young man, he says, yes. But to Simon, he says, no. I will not go away from you. Jesus allowed a man who thought he was good to go away. But Jesus refused to leave the man who knew himself to be a sinner. Now, I don't say that to worry you, to make you scared that perhaps you're the rich young man and that Jesus might let you walk away. Though we are all prone to self-righteousness, you are in the right place this morning. You've just gotten off the boat, having worked all night, and you caught nothing. That's why you're here in a school cafeteria on a frigid Sunday morning. Whatever do the work has meant for you, you've been trying and coming up short. You're still not who you want to be. You're still not who your spouse your friends, your family, or your boss wants you to be. You're still not who God wants you to be. You've gotten off the boat after this long night of work, and one thing is clearer than any other. You are a failure. Your nets are empty. But there, standing on the beach, is Jesus. Don't send him away. Outside of Jesus, there's only one place for you to go. Back out to sea, trying to catch fish where none exist. You'll do the work, but every morning you'll come back empty-handed. To return to our spousal analogy from the beginning of the sermon, you'll find that you still haven't improved yourself enough. Or you'll find that this new and better model you've traded in for doesn't totally meet your needs either. And so you'll row back out to sea to do it all again and again and again. You'll do the work, but the work is never done. Here is the truth. The work is only done by and in Jesus Christ. This was his shout from the cross. It is finished. So this morning, let your sin be clear to you like it was clear to Isaiah. Let your sin be clear to you like it was clear to Simon. You have unclean lips and you come from a people of unclean lips. You are a sinner. But believe This morning, that Jesus can save. 
He brought an overwhelming catch of fish from a sea that was completely empty. And he can bring new life to bloom in you. He was the burning coal touched to Isaiah's mouth that took away his sin. And he can take yours away too. Run to Jesus. Fall at his knees. He and he alone has done the work for you. So this morning, confess your sin and hear the absolution. That's Jesus refusing to go away from you. Reaffirm or affirm for the first time your faith as we say the creed. That's Jesus refusing to go away from you. Come to the table, eat and drink. That's Jesus welcoming you to a feast at which desperation, need, and confession are the, of the same are the only entrance requirements. Let Jesus do the work for you. Let his mercy, his body and blood overwhelm you. You once thought, maybe until right now, at this moment, that you would do the work and that you would tell Jesus to go away. But listen to me. Jesus' word to a sinner like you is, no, I won't. He will stay, and he will stay with you. He is here. He is here for you right now and forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.